Be More Human by Graham Brown. Be digital versus do digital. So it was the late 90s. The internet was booming. We hadn't even really hit our stride with the dot-com boom back then. And so around about 1997, 98, things started really kicking off. You had companies like AOL mailing CDs to your house free. So you'd get these packets come through the mail. You would open it up and there'd be a CD in it and you put the CD in your desktop tower and boot up the internet. That's how you got online. You know, you'd get online with the old beep, 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 56K if you were lucky modem. Back then it was more like 28K. And then you would dial up and most people accessed the internet back then through these gateways, these sort of closed wall ecosystems like AOL. But if you were a little bit more technical, like myself, being a computer science graduate, you could get online using a browser like Netscape Navigator or Internet Explorer. Back then, Netscape Navigator was the most popular browser back then. And you could get online and surf the internet. But you've got to bear in mind that back then, sort of like even 1997, 98, only a very small number of companies were online because the consumer market just wasn't there. And because the consumer market just wasn't there, the people who were online, like myself in 98, were communicating with other people like myself. So in, in 98, you could download a messenger app. There was an, a popular messenger app for those who remember the time called ICQ, which was an Israeli app. And you could m- meet random people on the messenger app and then make friends with them and meet them up in London. That's how open it was back then. It just seemed at the time, because there wasn't a consumer market, there wasn't also the byproducts of the consumer markets, which was spammers and scammers and a lot of weirdos that come and prey on the consumer market. You know, your mom and your dad went online back then. It was a lot of students. It was a lot of techies. So in 1998, I remember messaging some guy and we started back and forth this chat. And he was in London. He was telling me about how he had set up a business selling websites. And in 1998, I was, at the time, myself selling life assurances. I had found this job selling pensions and life assurances over the phone. That's how the world was back then, when you would phone up a phone book, pick out random names and say, Hello, my name is Graham Brown. The reason I'm calling you today is to see if you're interested in da-da-da-da-da, etc. That was the pitch. And I was very much interested in sales and started my own business and technology. And I had found this guy who kind of spoke the same language as me, but managed to monetize it. So he said, hey, look, listen, next week I'm going to this insurance company in London and I'm taking my laptop and bear in mind, people didn't really have laptops back then. And I'm going to go and pitch a website to them. And let's see what happens. Let's see if they buy it. You can come along with me. You can learn how it happens and just kind of absorb it and be my understudy for the day, my intern. So I took a day off work and I went with this guy. And I remember we spent, I don't know, it must have been about an hour trying to find this office building because it wasn't a big insurance company like an AXA or an AIG or anything like that. It was sort of a, one of these sort of lesser known insurance companies. But, you know, they made a lot of money and a lot of people didn't know who they were. We found these offices and we went in and everybody was there in suits. And because I was selling life insurance and pensions and at the time, I was wearing a suit as well. And this guy who had met for the first time turns up and he's wearing like a, a leather motorbiker's jacket and pair of jeans. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Let's see how he gets on with this. And he just kind of rocks up with his leather jacket and white shirt. Looks like something out of a movie. Wearing a pair of Tom Cruise aviator glasses. 
And he pulls out his laptop and he starts this presentation. And in those days, you know, it was not like you could simply plug in the HDMI cable and get the presentation up on the screen. Everybody had to crowd around this laptop. So you had like these four or five middle-aged, all guys, insurance company execs, all looking at this laptop and all sort of like, mm, you know, scratching their chins and sort of nodding. And basically the pitch was about the internet. This guy, this website sales guy was selling them the idea of the internet. Look, 2% of your consumer base is online now, but within five years, that's going to be 60%. And that's what he was selling. He wasn't selling the idea of a website. He was selling the idea of what they could be. And so he sold them this idea that they could have access to millions of consumers for very little money. And they could be one of the first insurance companies online. And they could deliver their insurance policies digitally. They could take quotes digitally. He showed them that this is a form you can fill out and your sales reps can get this form and then you could set up a call to sell an insurance policy to somebody. That was about as advanced as the technology was back then. We didn't have sort of all the beautiful forms that you have today with the nice UX, all that kind of thing. So it was really just a form and a few other pages selling insurance. And so this pitch lasted about an hour. And I remember at the end of the hour, the oldest guy who was, I guess, their boss, looked at it and he, he turned around to my friend in the leather jacket and he said, tell me something, who owns this internet? And then they all sort of nodded their head. Hmm. Yeah. Who is the CEO of the internet? Who's behind this? And what my friend tried to do, he sat there, he's trying to explain to these guys, nobody owned the internet. And they were having a real problem trying to onboard this idea. They didn't understand that the internet was effectively open source. They didn't even understand this idea that there was this common public framework that anybody could use. Because what they were worried about is if they put their website on there, effectively somebody else would own it. That's their concern. That's what was stopping them is they didn't understand this idea that they thought, well, somebody must own this real estate. A few weeks later, these guys did the deal. And interestingly, when I spoke to my leather jacket friend, he said that they didn't want to take email addresses. They didn't want a form on their website. They didn't want a form where you could fill out your name and your age and your gender and your, you know, do you smoke? Do you not smoke? Do you drink? How many units do you drink a week? They didn't want that. He said what they wanted and they paid 10,000 pounds for this, which was at the time about 20,000 US dollars. They wanted this guy, and I'm not kidding, for 10,000 pounds to come to their office, take a brochure, scan the brochure, and then upload the JPEG to the website. 10,000 pounds. Not a form, not any buttons, not any kind of interactivity. And they paid that money. Brochureware. And if you think back to 1998, when I first started getting into the commercialization of the internet, brochureware was actually a lot more common than we realized. And it seems crazy. It seems crazy that people would spend that kind of money on brochures and scanning them and uploading them to the website. But it's not crazy because that's how people thought back then. Their worldviews were very different. 
So it was just a natural extension of what they understood by marketing. When people thought about marketing, direct marketing, as they saw the internet, everybody saw it as direct marketing. And the only direct marketing people knew back then was print. It was inserts inside magazines, and it was sending mail out to people with pamphlets in it or stuffing pamphlets into mailboxes. That's all people knew. So therefore, when the internet came along, it was the digital version of that. You know, we had the internet in 1998, but we didn't think internet. And this is the difference between be digital and do digital. When TV first came out, the first TV programs were simply radio with pictures because people didn't understand what this could be. They saw the technology through the paradigm of the old technology, which was radio. So the first radio programs were people standing in front of a microphone in the same way they would gather around a microphone in a, a studio. They didn't understand that TV would be different. It wasn't radio with pictures. It was something else, and it required a different way of thinking about it. So that's why stars who were popular in radio didn't translate well to TV. It required a new generation of stars a new generation of thinkers, a new generation of content creators who didn't come from the world of radio. Sure, you can inherit some of the best of radio, but you have to think about it in a different way. And it's hard to think how we thought back then because that was the worldview. We only knew radio. In the same way, in the medieval ages, medieval times when man, mankind looked at the stars, they honestly thought that that was a planetarium. They thought that this was a dome that encased the earth. And so if you came along and said, no, it's not a dome, the earth actually goes around the sun and we live in this thing called the universe, as you know, many of the heretical and disruptive thinkers of the time like, for example, Ptolemy or even Galileo said that, you know, we live in this universe and the earth goes around the sun. People couldn't understand it. They only knew the planetarium and that was the limitations of their worldview. So to them, it seemed absolutely natural that the, that the universe was like that. So we think it's crazy now that people could actually think like that. We think it's crazy that man could think that actually we lived in this planetarium, but that was completely normal. And in the same way, we think it's crazy that the original internet websites were brochureware, but that's how we saw it because that was our worldview. In the same way, we saw TV as radio with pictures. And in many ways, we're experiencing it today with digital communication. You know, we're seeing webinars as offline events, but online, because we only know offline events. We only know this form or this worldview of how things should be done. So it's very hard for us to conceptualize what the new way of thinking should be until somebody explains it to us in the same way that somebody had to show that the internet wasn't about scanning brochures and uploading them but it was about a new way of thinking and access to new consumers. I mean, Gary Vee is a great example of that. He took his dad's old wine business and took it online. One of the first e-commerce stores, Jeff Bezos was the same. He understood that this wasn't about selling books from a bookstore online. This was about selling books, the people's access to books. So the limitations of shelf space that you consider define bookstores don't apply to Amazon. You know, when you go to a physical bookstore, you are limited by the amount of books that you can actually 
see and discover. And so therefore, the bookseller has to make choices about those books. In the same way, if you go to a record store in the old days, they would have to focus on selling the most popular items. Now, it's very different to Spotify today. The, the way of thinking about music that Spotify approaches is born in the digital age, whereas the record stores, you know, you think about when you go to an HMV or a Tower Records or whatever the record store was in your hometown in the old days, you walk up to the display in the window and you saw saw it there. You know, they would say, Michael Jackson's Thriller is out and the whole window display would be about Michael Jackson's Thriller. And there's a reason for that is because they have limited shelf space and therefore they want to make sure that that shelf space is dedicated to the most successful items that they can sell. And so the physical form of the store actually defined the way that we thought about it and thought about business. But if you don't have a record store, you don't have to only sell the most popular items. And therefore, you think about it, like if you grew up in that era, if you grew up in the any, you know, any sort of pre-2000 era and consumed music in that era, everything was about charts. It was about the top 10, the best sellers. And the reason why we had that was because of the physical shelf space. Because the record store had to tell us, these are the 10 that I want you to buy. If you put in there some weird and wonderful music, it may be relevant to you. I mean, you may be relevant in world music, or you may be relevant, or, or indie music may be your thing, or K-pop, it didn't even exist back then in the global consciousness. But if you put that in the top 10, effectively what you're doing is you're edging out a more popular item. And therefore you're reducing the potential sales. But today we have the long tail of the back catalog. Now, I mean, if you use Spotify today, you probably use it to consume music that's been around for a long time, not sort of like the latest top 10. And if you look at the consumption curve of Spotify, 90% of it is back catalog. It's old music, that old meaning anything that's older than a year. So that's changing the whole dynamic of music. And it's changing the whole dynamic of how we communicate and marketing as well. Because until now, everything was defined by the physical limitations of the business, but no more. So that's the difference between be digital and do digital. Do digital is taking a record store and putting it online. And be digital is saying, well, actually, in this digital world, we don't have any kind of physical restrictions, really. If I want to go into Spotify and seek out K-pop or The Clash or Bob Marley, I can go all the way back. You know, it's like having an unlimited shelf space. And so that means I don't need to have top tens anymore. And because I don't need top tens anymore, I don't need radio DJs to tell me what's in the top 10. So everything is changing because we're changing the physics of the business itself. And therefore we need people who are born of that world to fully maximize and exploit and leverage the physics of that world. And that's the difference between be digital and do digital. Do digital tends to be companies, entities born of the previous era who try to use digital to optimize that existing model. Whereas be digital are people born of the digital era who think digital from day one. And that's why it's like teenagers who get it. That's why it took Napster he was 19 years old to come up with that model. He wasn't a record label executive, which he should have been. He was 19. He was asking, why not? Why can't I share music? 
in the old days when we shared music, we used to sit around the house. My friends would come around my house and they would rifle through my record collection and I would do the same. If, if you were a teenager, what you did was you went to your mate's house and one of the first things you did was get out their record box. And in those days, the record was vinyl. It was art. If you look at the vinyl of, for example, Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles, that's art. And you know, the thing about something like Sgt. Pepper's, Sgt. Pepper's, the album was again, I mean, it's almost like itself, it's a product of the age. You know, that album was produced in 1967. And it was a studio album produced by the Beatles. And it was unlike anything produced before because it was effectively an album produced for the sake of producing an album, not to produce a tour as the Beatles had been doing previously. And what had happened was, is then when the Beatles went to, the, went to America and John Lennon uttered those immortal words, we're bigger than Jesus. And then all the evangelists came out and started burning Beatles records. And where Beatles had gone from like a, you know, a sensation to being dumped, they, they weren't able to sell out tours. And so they basically decided that screw touring, which is like how artists made their money back then. He said, screw that. We're not going to tour anymore. We're going to go into studio and we're going to record an album just for the studio. We're going to spend a year not touring and producing singles, but we're going to produce an album, which is a story front to back. And that's why if you listen to the music on Sgt. Pepper's, it's one of the first albums that's actually created for the medium. You know, it's, it's created for people to listen to this stuff at home, not for DJs to play it. Because, you know, if you, if you take some of the, the hits off Sgt. Pepper's Like a Day in the Life, when you start that song, it actually still has the remnants of the song before it. So it's not actually made for radio, it's made for home consumption. And that, took, that sort of radical thought took a different way of thinking, that this is what we're gonna do. We're born of this era, so therefore we're gonna produce for this era. Whereas the people that came before them were like, okay, well, we're gonna produce sort of, you know, 10, three minute radio singles, which is what people did back then. And then we're gonna use those to promote the album. And then we're gonna tour. That was the equivalent of doing digital. But the Beatles in their day did the equivalent of be digital which was, let's not be confined by the physical constraints of business or the way we do things. Let's start with the problem and build around that. The famous adage, time is money, can be traced back to Benjamin Franklin. He said in 1748, in his publication, Advice to a Young tradesmen, that time is money. And that one phrase has def defined effectively 250 years of business. Before time is money, there was no time is money. People didn't think in those ways. People didn't think that your time could be sold as money. And effectively what Benjamin Franklin was doing was just saying, well, you know, if you're gonna waste time, you're also squandering money. And really that defined the industrial revolution, that thought. And with it, the idea of efficiency, that if you become more efficient in the use of your time, you could also make more money. So it made sense, for example, if you believe time is money, you could also look at machines as a way of making money. And so when the industrial revolution, the first industrial revolution took place, it wasn't the bygone era that was able to leverage the new technology. It was the new thinkers. It was the equivalent of B-Digital. 
because it wasn't just about taking machines and applying it to existing processes. It was thinking about these processes in a new way. It took somebody like Benjamin Franklin and all the people that came after him to rethink what machines could be and what the Industrial Revolution could be. And a great example of this is print. And print is possibly one of the most disruptive technologies of all time. And you go way back to the Gutenberg printing press. You know, when the, when the printing press came about, you've got to understand where it came from. Gutenberg's parents were minters. They, they minted coins. They were Jews. And because money or the production of money or anything related to that was seen as somehow unholy, it was the only, you know, it was the underclasses, the Jews, were the only ones that could actually print money. And so that's why, you know, obviously the Jews were bankers, the Jews were the money lenders, the Jews were also the printers. You know, and what Gutenberg did was take the coin stamping mechanism that his parents were using and use that to print text. And when print came about, just not long before the Industrial Revolution, how it was used is really an insight into be digital versus do digital. Because for us now, the idea of printing, the idea of printing a blog or a book or a WhatsApp message, you know, that all comes from the printing press. For us, it appears natural. But you have to understand that back then it wasn't. In the same way mankind looked at the stars, they only saw things through the worldview that they had at the time. So what was the worldview at the time that the printing press was invented? Back then, we had books, but books weren't what we think of as books. You know, when you think of a, a book today, you can buy a book for $10, $15, and it can change your life. Our lives are touched by books, and they're very cheap. Yet back then, the books that we had prior to the printing press, were manuscripts. Now, the, to understand what a manuscript is, it comes from the word manuscript, manu, from the word hand, script to write. The original manuscripts were handwritten. And they were handwritten by monks in scriptoriums. So monks would have this job of writing these manuscripts for wealthy lords or for, you know, religious figures. And you could spend your whole life writing a manuscript. If you were a monk, you spent your whole life in this scriptorium just doing like gilding, which is like, you know, writing the gold script. Or you might be the guy that just does the illustrations. Or you might be the guy that just does the drop caps. You know, the sort of beautiful embellishments of a single letter that started the chapter. That's what you could be doing your whole life. And when you look at what actually people wrote about in manuscripts, they weren't writing. I mean, if I look at what's in my bookshelf now, just turning to the right of me, I've got the Book of Humans, The Platform Revolution, Traveler's Tales of Old Singapore, The Silk Roads, George Orwell's 1984, Seth Godin's This Is Marketing, AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. None of that. Not, not because these are obviously different technologies, but the point is, is the, these are written by normal people about normal things. Back then, manuscripts were so expensive that you had to be extremely rich to commission one. And therefore, what you wrote about in the manuscript tended to be stuff that reinforced societal narrative. So you look at the early manuscripts, they were books about the Bible, they were books about lords and how they kind of lived their pious lives. None of it was about 
you know, what you would read on my bookshelf. And that's really important because when the printing press came out, the church actually got hold of it. The church took the printing press and started producing pamphlets, so leaflets about what they would be printing in manuscripts. And that's the example of do digital because they didn't understand that the new technology required a new way of thinking. And then the church realized actually this printing press was being used by people who were challenging their way of thinking. I mean, most obviously Martin Luther, who was instrumental in the first printed Bible in English or German. You know, it can be traced back to people like him. But, you know, when he walked up to the church and nailed the treatise on the door, it was a direct challenge to the church at the time. Because what he was doing, he was challenging the idea that the church could charge money for what would be effectively redemption. So if you were a rich Lord at the time, you could pay for your sins. So for example, if you had treated people badly, if you had murdered somebody, if you had robbed people of land, you could go to the church and you could pay, let's say 10,000, $100,000 to a bishop. And he would then write you redemption. And then your soul would be saved. Martin Luther wasn't happy with that process because it encouraged, obviously, bad behavior by lords, but also corruption. So he started challenging this idea. And it gave birth to the equivalent of be digital, which was liberal progressive thought. And the byproduct of that in Europe was Protestant, Protestantism, which comes from the word to protest. But aside from religion, look at how literature unfolded as a result of the printing press. It wasn't religious manuscripts that became popular. In the same way, it wasn't radio stars that became popular in the world of TV. It was this sort of very different mindset. The church tried to ban printing presses, or they did ban printing presses in many cities. And that's why if you look at the, the outlawing of the printing press took hold in the strongholds of the Catholic church at the time, which was Spain, Italy, and sort of the Mediterranean countries. What that did, it forced the Jewish printers into the North, into the more, you know, into cities where the Catholic Church had a less of a hold. So the, there is a strong correlation between the influence of the Catholic Church at the turn of the Industrial Era, or the pre just slightly before the Industrial Revolution, and the growth of progressive thought, and the Jewish community. That's why they migrated to Germany. That's why they migrated to Amsterdam. That's why they migrated to Paris and to London, these North European capitals where the reach of the Catholic Church was less effective. So these Jewish communities had migrated to these cities and these cities now became hotbeds of progressive thought. That's why the French Revolution started in the coffee shops and the salons of Paris. That's why Protestantism, Protestantism started in the North European capitals of countries like Germany. And that's why the print revolution happened in cities like London and Glasgow, because they were far away from the Catholic Church. You look at, for example, how be digital the equivalence of that in the pre-industrial era, really flourished in those cities. Take, for example, the liberal progressive thought that came out of cities like Glasgow 
Adam Smith, who we all know as the author of The Wealth of Nations, probably is one of the most influential figures in the industrial era. He was the really the godfather of the idea of markets, which to us now seems obvious. But back then, there was no idea of markets in this global sense. We only knew markets as where you went and traded pigs and cows and weave baskets. You know, Adam Smith was born in Glasgow and he was influenced by philosophers such as David Hume, who wrote a treatise on human nature. So what was happening was is that this new ideas were fermenting in these cities where people were really thinking digital in the equivalent age. And it's no coincidence that Benjamin Franklin was also a publisher. You know, Franklin published and made a lot of money out of um, publications in the early 18th century. And he himself was influenced. I mean, he spent time in Paris, for example, with uh, people like Procop and influenced by the works of people like Robespierre, who were fundamental in the French Revolution. You know, he, their ideas, he absorbed in those French salons and took them back to the East Coast of America. And that became the beginning of democratic thought. You know, what the French had started, the Americans continued. And it's no coincidence that when France, sorry, when America declared independence, it was France that sent the first gift to the Americans, a statue, the Statue of Liberty. That came from France. There was a strong connection in the liberal thought between the two countries. And if you look at it, when new technologies are born, there is always this transfer of ideas between people who understand it. And in many ways, resistance to those ideas from people who don't understand it. The original books, print books, were not these expensive manuscripts that cost thousands of dollars. They were what's called chapbooks. Now, there, is a, there was a guy who lived in my road when I was a kid, and his, his surname, his family name was Chapman. Chapman. And if he, was to, if he was to trace his name back hundreds of years, it would have come from the word, the old English word, cheap, chap. And there was a, a job, effectively, for somebody, it was called, they were called a chapman. Now a chapman, what he would do was he would take his, up his bindle and stick and he would travel this sort of mendicant lifestyle, traveling itinerantly from, you know, one village to another village in the sort of early industrial era, traveling around. And he was sort of, a chapman would rock up to a village with his bag and he would open his bag and out he would, books. Now he would sell these books to villagers for a penny. And what villagers would do is they would take a book and then they would read it together, you know, under candlelight in the inn, in the bar, in the pub. And they would read these books or somebody would read it out to them. And what the chapman would do, he would sort of pay for his way and maybe the innkeeper would give him lodging for the night if he would read one of these chat books to the village people. That was a real job. It was a chapman. Obviously, they don't exist anymore, but they existed back then. And if you think about it, then they were really the byproduct of a different way of thinking. Because in the era of manuscripts where the narrative was controlled, those manuscripts were actually chained, chained to pulpits inside churches. You know, they were so expensive that they had to be chained to the church. And yet here we have this sort of different way of thinking, which is very cheap. 
and very decentralized. And what was happening was at the time in places like Amsterdam and London, Paris, there was an explosion in cheap publications and printing presses. And they were knocking out these chat books a penny a time. And what these chat books weren't talking about was lords and priests and kings. Rather, they were talking about other stuff. They were talking about, for example, Renard the Fox or the mysterious tale of the green man. Sort of folk tales, fairy tales. Or they were talking about philosophy, a treatise on human nature or astronomy. What was happening is this huge dissemination of thought and ideas that happened as a result of the printing press and cheap publication. And as a result, if you look at the data on literacy between 16th century and 18th century, there's an explosion in literacy. You know, where people were pre-printing press, more or less illiterate, unless you were a king or a queen or a lord or a priest. By the 18th century, literacy rates had, you know, were more than 50%. Like most people could read. And if most people could read, they could also consume new ideas and thoughts that weren't centralized, that didn't come from the priest. In the pre-literacy era, if you wanted to know morals, you had to go to the church and the priest would say, this is what you should do. And you couldn't then challenge it because you couldn't read Latin. You just had to say, okay, fine. If that's what it says in the book, that's what I'm going to do. But in the post-literacy era, where you had now 50% of people who could read, they could pick up the Bible themselves, or they could pick up a book like the Treatise of Human Nature or the Wealth of Nations. And they could understand the world on their terms. They could consume it. They didn't need this mediary to tell them what the world was. And so what happened was it wasn't just this huge explosion on literacy. It was the ideas that went with it. Because like the record store, if ideas are defined by the physical limitation on those ideas, then it makes sense that we would only share the top 10 of ideas, the equivalents of the bestsellers, which are, by the way, determined by the DJs. And in the equivalence of that in the the world of ideas, those DJs would be the church, the editors, the mediaries who told you, well, we only have space to talk about these ideas, so we're going to talk about the ones that we want you to know about. However, now comes along these chat books and people can get access to ideas wherever. So the whole idea of the top 10 commandments, if you like, becomes less effective. And we see this with new technologies. And this is the difference between be digital and do digital. For example, take the telephone. Now, the telephone as a technology was, it's, it's, it's a subject of debate who actually discovered it. But let's say that it was Alexander Graham Bell, who was a Scottish Canadian inventor. Now, there was a company called Bell Technology or Bell Telecoms. But it has very little to do with Bell himself. Now, while he actually was able to transmit voice from A to B, he didn't think of it in a decentralized way. And we don't know. We don't know what it was like back then, because like the mankind staring at the stars, we only see the world through our worldview now. If you walk on out into the street and you see somebody you know, what do you say? Hi. Hello. In the old days, people didn't say that. And it's hard to think that we 
communicated in any other way because we only know the way we communicate today through our worldview. When you pick up the phone now and answer a phone call, you say hi. But go back 100, 150 years. We didn't do that because we didn't know. Hi is very informal. It's very direct. And it suits the medium. But when we first had to democratize or scale telecoms, Thomas Edison faced this problem that he, what he had was this decentralized technology. But everybody, when they picked up the phone, the equivalents of, and they had to sort of dial up and spin it around and then try and speak to somebody. The problem was, is they didn't know how to speak to somebody in this new decentralized technology. So there was no standard for people to communicate with each other. Or, you know, what do you say when you pick up the phone, when you don't have a standard? You know, people didn't say hi back then. People didn't say hello. These words didn't really exist in common language. So they had no standard. A lot of the people struggled to adapt to this new format because they didn't know how to start a conversation. In the old days, you would sort of doff your cap or you would bow or you would acknowledge somebody in some way. But with this new technology, you couldn't see them. So how did you start? How did you initiate a conversation? And when Thomas Edison started the rollout of mass telecommunications in America, he found that a lot of people didn't know. There were a lot of different competing ways to start conversations. There was, what is your bidding, for example, which seems just crazy. Or, ahoy, the, the naval maritime greeting. Can you imagine picking up the phone and saying, ahoy, or what is your bidding? It just feels weird. It feels very formal and stuffy. And therefore, Thomas Edison realized that for us to be digital as opposed to just do digital in the context of this new technology, we had to think digital, which was we had to move away from the old paradigms of the technology. We had to think of it in a different way because it was a very informal and decentralized technology and therefore it required a very informal and decentralized way of speaking to people. We couldn't doff our caps, greet people or curtsy or bow. We had to do away with all of that. So Thomas Edison invented effectively the word hello. And that seems crazy. Hello to us seems natural. How could there ever be a world where there wasn't hello? But it's so natural to us today, it wasn't back then. And Thomas Edison invented the hello girls. These were women who manned exchanges and they wore these pins, these badges that said, hello, my name is. Can you think about this? We're talking like, over a hundred years ago. It's radical. It's so decentralized. It's so different to what existed then when people would pick up the phone and say, ahoy. And so my point is, is that, you know, Bell is credited with the invention of the telephone, but Edison is credited with the adoption. Decentralized technology favors decentralized thinkers. And this is where we are today. This is the difference between do digital and be digital. Digital isn't new media, but business as usual. We have to think about these things differently. The whole premise of our business world is built on an industrial model around efficiency. In the same way, the record store is built on efficiency of shelf space. 
right? And in the same way, so much of business is determined by the physical form of that business. And so it's very hard for us to understand what B Digital really is. Because so much of our processes, like mankind looking at the stars, are determined by our worldviews now, which is this paradigm of efficiency. And so the key difference between be digital and do digital is effectively also the difference between digital transformation and digitalization. Let me explain. Digitalization is do digital. Digital transformation is be digital. Digitalization is management. Digital transformation is leadership. Digital transformation is effectiveness. What matters now? Digitalization is taking your website or your brochure and scanning it and putting it online. It's a more efficient way of distributing brochures. Those insurance company execs knew that if they printed 100,000 brochures, it would cost them £20,000. But they could print an infinite number of brochures by scanning it and putting it online. For them, it was an efficiency saving. And yet, the companies that really understood this and how to use the internet didn't see it in the context of efficiency. They looked at it in the context of effectiveness which is this isn't about efficiency savings. This has to be about reaching new markets and cutting through the formality of business. That's why digital transformation isn't about digital effectively. It's about people. It's about mindsets and stories and about how we organize our people. In the old world, digitalization is about organizing people more efficiently, more efficiently with digital. Think about, for example, the whole challenge of the office. Now, I see the office as a solution, not a problem. This is really important to understand the difference. Why do we have physical offices? Because it's a solution to the problem of efficiency in business. It isn't the problem itself. So when you have this problem of efficiency, which is how do we efficiently organize and pool our resources in one place as a silo. You know, at the most basic level, how do we operate a switchboard? How do we not have to pay for a photocopier or a printer in every single household? Let's just get everybody to come to one place and just have one printer. That's an efficiency saving. So therefore, the office is a solution to a problem. It isn't the, sol it isn't the problem itself. The problem is, you know, how do we organize our resources for this model of business? And when Bruce Lee said, the problem when people point to the moon is they look at the finger and not the moon. And it's the same with the office today. We're looking at the finger pointing at the moon, not the moon itself. We think that the office is a problem, is the problem. And now we're, what we're trying to do is we're saying, okay, like we have this thing called the office, which is what we do. And therefore we have this problem now, which is we can't go to the office because of the pandemic. So what people are trying to do now is they're trying to recreate the office in a virtual environment. And that's no different from the insurance company executive saying, how do we scan our brochures and put them online? Because it's a cheaper way of doing it. Because their problem was efficiency, not effectiveness. And we have this problem now in business that people are looking at the office as a problem, not a solution. The office is a solution. It's a solution to the problem of efficiency. It isn't the problem itself. And therefore, we have to look at it and say, well, look, if the, if the problem has changed from efficiency to where we are today, which is the age of authenticity, then we don't need to have an office for the same reasons that we have them yesterday. So we should stop thinking about the office as 
work from the office, you know, well, sorry, stop thinking about work from home as work from the office, but at home, that's like brochureware. We're thinking about the office as the problem, but it's not. In the same way with webinars, we're thinking about offline events as the problem, but it's not. The problem is, is how do people from our industry come together and connect and share knowledge? The problem isn't the event. That's the solution to that problem of how do we come together, network and share knowledge. And so therefore, we should be thinking about a different solution if the problem changes. What's happening is, is the tail wags the dog again. Like the office and like brochureware, people are saying, our problem is the finger pointing at the moon. It's the event. And now in this world of pandemic, we can't have offline events. So what we need to do is take the problem and put it online. So what's happening is now pretty much every webinar is an offline event, but online in the same way that all companies are trying to recreate the office, but at home in the same way, the insurance companies are trying to recreate their efficiency, their direct marketing, but online or record companies trying to take that physical shelf space model and put it online. But as we know, decentralized Technology always favors decentralized thinkers. And in many ways, you can't read, you can't change the paradigm that these people are thinking with because they are the paragons. They are the model of success for that model, for that way of thinking. The reason they've got to where they are is because they're very good at that way of thinking. So to ask them to change that is going to ask them to change themselves. Take an airline, for example. Now, what do airlines do? They take us from A to B. That's the problem. The problem isn't airplanes. The problem isn't how do we have airplanes in a world where people aren't traveling. The problem is travel. How do I get from Singapore to Bangkok? Or from Bangkok to London, London to JFK? And in the digitally transformed era, there's a very, there is going to be an extreme differentiation between B digital airlines and do digital airlines. Because a do digital airline is thinking about digital in the context of digitalization, which is a management play, which is optimizing and making it more efficient i.e., how do we use digital to be more efficient? So book your tickets online or, you know, download your boarding pass online because it saves us having to print it for you. But planes are not the problem. They're solutions. And getting people from A to B is the problem. So a B digital airline is very different. A B digital airline, for example, won't be the airline that flies the most planes. It will be the travel company that solves the most problems. And that airline may actually be a taxi company or an insurance company. If you look at, for example, AirAsia, that's a an airline that wants to become a digital travel company. Now, we don't know what's going to happen to airlines in the next two or three years because of the pandemic. But we do know this, that whoever emerges on the other side won't be doing digital. They'll be being digital. They'll be the airline, the travel company born of that era in the same way. They'll be the Spotify, not the record label. They'll be the printing presses and not the manuscripts. And we're going to see this everywhere. In every industry, 
The transport brand of the future won't be the automotive brand that has the best ad campaigns or dealerships, but it could be a data company that solves the most transport problems. We all need to get from A to B at some point. Does it matter if I'm doing it in a BMW or a Mazda 3? Does it matter if I own the car or rent it for seven minutes? If you are an automotive brand, you're tied to the physical limitations and paradigms of your era. You have a factory, you produce cars. Cars are extremely inefficient. They spend 95% of the time not moving. And when they do with three empty seats, so therefore you have to hire an ad agency to make people believe that this is a good purchase. And so therefore, that whole model, the factory model of automotive production plus advertising the car is absolutely key to the success of that model. But these are solutions, not problems. What if their problem changes? What if, for example, I can get from A to B now without having to spend all that money on inefficiencies in the system, which are ad agencies? Why do I need advertising? If the data company has lots of data about me, why does it need to spend money advertising as if it doesn't know me? Why does it need to spend billions of dollars every year on ads, on ad campaigns, on celebrities to get me to go from A to B and buy this car? I don't care if I can simply pick up my phone and order a taxi from A to B. Why does the company need to advertise? So it's not just about doing digital. Doing digital is an automotive company having an app, an automotive company spending money on digital ads. And that's going to be around. I mean, you know, that's going to be around for 10, 20, 30, maybe even a hundred years. In the same way, it doesn't just end. I mean, we still have radio. We still have brochures. But the point being, and, and obviously we still have record stores as well, but the point being is that the real growth stories, the 10X, the 100X, the Spotify's, the real disruptive ideas and change makers like democracy or rational thought or the enlightenment or even evolution, for example, they weren't born of a previous era. They came from people who were native. They were digital native. They started with that concept, the idea of what is the problem and how can we use digital to solve it? That's the difference between be digital and do digital. It's about being digitally native as a company. And starting with that idea, take events, for example. If the goal for us is to network and share knowledge, I can do that on Zoom. But why do I have to spend the first 15 minutes of the Zoom webinar waiting for people to start the webinar? If it says 8.45, we go live, let's start at 8.45. Why are we starting at nine o'clock? The reason is, is the tail wags the dog because the organizer isn't being digital, they're doing digital. They're basically taking the old event model where you walked into the conference at the hotel and you picked up your badge and you got your coffee and your cheap biscuits and you walked into the room with the white tablecloths and you found the one in the corner and you got your free pen, your candies in the bowl and you got your free pad of paper and you said hello to the people next to you and exchanged cards. That takes 15 minutes, right? But nobody challenges that. In the same way, people don't say, hang on a second. Look, we have this thing called TV and it's visual. So why don't we use it in a visual, visual way? Why are we just doing radio, but with images? In the same way, people are saying, or were saying, look, we have this new technology called telephones. Why are we still talking to each other? in a way that is from a bygone era. 
Yeah, sure. It's going to be around. We're still going to have, we're going to have ad, ad agencies. We're going to have all the byproducts of the industrial era for another 20, 30 years because there will always be fear. There will always be people scared of making changes. But the future isn't for these companies. The future is for the decentralized thinkers, the ones who are digitally native. Think back to those insurance company execs. What are we going to do? Are we going to fully embrace the technology, be digital, think digital, and be digitally native? Are we going to simply do digital, which is scan the brochure? <laughs>